Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. Today, we're going to be tackling some very hard but very relevant topics in the church, and it's important that we approach such topics with grace and tact and prayerful understanding. Today, we will be talking about pro-life. Specifically, we will be addressing contraception and abortion. If you're listening to us live, it's Sunday, January 16th, and the Diocese of Harrisburg is holding its annual Respect Life Mass. This is an opportunity for Catholics throughout the diocese to commemorate the Roe v. Wade decision and the millions of lives that have been lost to abortion since 1973. The March for Life in Washington is also taking place this week, and if you'd like to participate, you can visit our website at hbgdiocese.org and click the March for Life button. I want to approach this with grace because one out of every four women has had an abortion, and 78.3% of women have felt pressure to have an abortion. 88% of sexually active women use contraceptives, and as an imperfect Catholic, I was one of them. I was fed this story that it was beneficial for my health. It would slow the growth of my endometriosis. It would stabilize my mood swings and my painful monthly cycles. It didn't. When I started experiencing adverse side effects, I was met with resistance from my doctors who continued to feed the narrative that having a baby would ruin everything, that natural family planning has, quote, a high failure rate. It didn't. When I struggled to conceive my first baby, I was told my only answer would be IVF because the stage of my endometriosis wouldn't allow natural fertilization. It wasn't. My entire adult life, I felt this narrative that women are told once they become a certain age was somehow incorrect, and I couldn't shake it. I felt the medical community was just looking for band-aids rather than actually trying to heal me. It wasn't until we miscarried and I sank my grief into finding out exactly what was going on with my body that I realized other forms of family planning even existed. I had heard of this Catholic OBGYN practice years before, but I wasn't going to go there. They didn't prescribe the birth control, and I needed it for my endometriosis. Now I was turning to them desperately because they were the only ones in the area who specialized in this holistic and faith-based approach to medicine. The doctor who helped me through my miscarriage, who found the reason why my body couldn't maintain my pregnancy, and who delivered my very first baby was the same woman. And, I'm not kidding, her name was Faith. If that isn't a sign from God, 
I don't know what is. Fast forward a few years later, and we're unexpectedly pregnant with our third child. A third child we couldn't financially afford and weren't ready to provide for. I called my best friend, and her first reaction was, what are you going to do? Are you going to get it taken care of? For me, the answer was clear. But for many women, one out of four to be specific, in that exact same position, the answer is not. It's muddled and murky and lonely. So from one imperfect Catholic to another, I want to extend you grace. God's mercy is deep and wide. There is no sin he won't forgive except the one you don't ask forgiveness for. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Drs. Anne-Marie Manning and Naomi Whitaker, two pro-life OBGYNs based in central Pennsylvania, to explain to us from a scientific perspective why abortion and contraception are not the only answers and why society portrays them as the only feminist options out there. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and what your life as a pro-life practitioner looks like? Um, so I came here to this prac- uh, to Pennsylvania three years ago to join in remaining uh, in her practice um, as a pro-life practice. And uh, at that point, we uh, were a hospital-based practice and uh, shared a group call together um, to cover um, emergency, the emergency room, labor and delivery, and a clinic. I went to Creighton Medical School in Omaha, and at that point, I made the decision um, to practice OBGYN medicine in this way. So from the beginning, I studied extra hard to learn um, other ways to treat women's health issues that didn't involve um, birth control Um, and uh, went to sought out training programs, which allowed me to, um, to defend the unborn and, you know, give the best quality of care, which is the best quality of care for the mom is also great care for the unborn child. And so I was able to seek out places that taught me how to give really good medicine to protect both mother and unborn child. And so um, uh, basically, I mean, it's very similar to a general OBGYN, um, but I'm able to do um, other things to treat underlying causes. Um, And so I have more things in my toolbox actually to offer to patients um, as an alternative to what they usually are offered. So my, my path was a little bit, uh, Dr. Manning, um, you were talking to, the, to, to Dr. Whitaker just now. Uh, my path is a little bit more crooked than, than um, Dr. Whitaker's path. Um, I started in practice here several decades ago, longer than I would like to admit. And I joined a, a general practice here and did sort of traditional OBGYN care, um, prescribed OCs, did tubal ligations, all of those things. Um, never really thought about it, even though, um, I grew up Catholic, even though during my medical school training and I went home and I was very excited about having done my first tubal ligation or assisted in one of my father's questions was, you know, didn't that bother you? And I kind of looked at him like he had two heads, never really thought about it more than that. Cause I was like many people and kind of, you know, 
didn't really pay attention to those teachings of the church. Um, but I had been practicing here in a general OB, uh, GYN group for six years when my husband, um, who was not Catholic, started to go to RCIA and lots of questions came up. And um, when he got tired of me, every time he asked me, why does the church do this? And my response was, um, I don't know, honey, it's a mystery. Uh, he said, Emory, you should probably come to this class with me because I don't really think you know anything <laughs> about this church. So anyway, I went to, to RCA, was challenged with, by our parish priest there, and eventually came to a, a conversion of my own. I realized I had to stop prescribing if I was going to be faithful. To my, to, you know, if I was actually going to be a faithful Catholic, I needed to stop um, prescribing OCs and doing tubals and um, had the great support at the time of uh, Sister Romaine at Holy Spirit Hospital. Um, she helped um, and the administration there helped me set up a new practice. So we opened a practice that was um, uh, truly pro-life um, and um, was, you know, supportive of uh um, all the teachings of the Catholic Church um, continued as a general OBGYN practice, though, and taught the and, and treated the whole gamut of, of medical problems in OBGYN, but didn't use oral contraceptives um, for um, contraception, didn't do tubal ligations anymore. At the time, I was about the 14th obstetrician gynecologist in the country to at least publicly be practicing that way. It was a very nice little community. We all got to know one another. Those folks were very supportive. I had the, um, I was going to say good luck, but I really think it's Providence um, to be, to get connected through something my husband saw on EWTN um, about Dr. Hilgers out in Omaha and kind of get, be able to begin to learn how to practice without those typical crutches that gynecologists use of you know, using oral contraceptives to treat everything under the sun. Um, and I had that great opportunity to go out to, to Omaha and begin to be trained um, by Dr. Hilgers. And um, kind of the practice evolved since then. So I, I think one of the biggest things about the difference between a pro-life practice, a true pro-life practice, and the usual OBGYN practice is that we're more focused on solving problems instead of just getting rid of symptoms because oral contraceptives can be used very successfully to get rid of symptoms, but that doesn't necessarily mean they've solved the problem. So what called you to being an OBGYN? Why did you choose that line of medicine? Uh, I had absolutely no intention of doing that. When I went to medical school, I was going to be a cardiologist. Um, but when I did my OB, one of my OB rotations as a medical student, um, surprisingly or, or funnily enough, the two doctors I was working with, one of them had actually graduated or gone to high school in South Jersey with my mother. Um, so we had this connection with them, but they took me on and I was doing my third year rotation with them. And I had the opportunity to see them do a, a forceps delivery of a baby that was in trouble. And I was just blown away by that. So as soon as I saw that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I went to medicine thinking this is the one field I don't want to do. And uh, I just thought it was pap smears and, and be pretty boring, too. I had a deeper conversion before I chose this field um, in Omaha. And while my husband was deployed to Afghanistan and he uh, wanted to start a family um, when he got back. And so I became a mother in medical school 
at the same time as I was deciding what to do with my life uh, and what field to pursue. And so that experience, um, the medical care I received, which wasn't uh, something that an approach that I would, that I could do now. It was, so uh, that led, then I did my OBGYN rotation when my son was two or three months old and I got to see the other side. And so uh, that whole experience and seeing, uh, being able to see what I was, the care that I was given. And then I was able to be with physicians who were Catholic and use NAPR technology to help heal women and how um, the beauty of motherhood was really embraced and uh, helping women with infertility and really neat surgeries. All those came together um, for me. Um, I just saw this as a beautiful way to offer um, better care and medicine. Why do you believe the medical community defaults to contraceptives to deal with almost every health issue like you had talked about, mood disorders, irregular cycles? Why do you believe that it's actually the wrong answer in in terms of how it applies to your body and what it can do to your body? Speaking more broadly in terms of a societal answer, um, I'm kind of a feminist in, in, in this regard. I think women are ignored. And we used to tell women that all their problems were because they were anxious and because they were nervous and because their uterus was wandering, the word hysteria. Um, I think it's an outgrowth of that. It's an easy way to make these problems go away. And it doesn't require a huge investment of time from the medical community on really solving the problems the women present with. Um, I think it's a lack of respect for women in terms of the unique problems that they have um, and the unique potentials that they have. And how can we best support women, whether it's in a way to manage their fertility or to um, solve physical problems that they have um, while still respecting them as women? Yeah, in the 1960s when it was invented, um, it did change things for women. I don't, I don't know exactly what they were taught about their menstrual cycle at the time, or how effective NFP was, um, or how well known it was. But this seemed like a great idea in the 60s, and um, it helped. It was probably marketed very well at the time, and um, at that time, ACOG did redefine pregnancy to help promote the pill um, by saying that pregnancy didn't start until implantation instead of conception to help with uh, accepting the pill into society. Um, also, they added the placebo pill days to make sure that women menstruated to make sure it felt normal for them. Um, so there, there's definitely some marketing to start with. And then I think medicine was quick to, to, take, to take it on because it is quick women aren't going to die from a painful period and medicine is really good at keeping women alive and saving babies with an emergency C-section. Um, and so in medicine, we don't always do a great job in optimizing health and quality of life. That's just not what, what we're trained to do in our medical school training. Um, and so I, I think we're still kind of stuck back 
women's health hasn't made a lot of progress. It tends to be pretty late to innovation. Most of the meds on the market aren't much different now than they were back in the 60s. The, the chemicals in the synthetic, you know, these synthetic hormones change a little bit in uh, their different generations and they have different side effects, um, similar mechanism of actions, a little bit different dosing, um, but they're pretty much the same since the 60s. Um, so I, yeah, I do think it's kind of a lack of innovation. And yeah, why? I don't know. I mean, women need to uh, demand better as well. And I think that's happening now. They see that uh, they want something more. And I, it, especially with social media, there's a lot more knowledge around um, and desire to know more about our bodies and to try to get rid of toxins and you know BPA and all that. So I think there is a big movement of women that that are like, oh, I could I could get better care than that. Yeah, that they're starting to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. more. I wholeheartedly agree. So talk to me about Napro technology and how this type of medicine addresses all the issues without contraception. Sure. So Napro technology is based on is well, it stands for natural appropriative technology, and so it's working cooperatively with the body to diagnose and treat underlying health issues. And so the way this is able to be done is empowering the woman with the knowledge of exactly how her menstrual cycle works. And the hard thing about women is that we're different every day of the month, unlike men that are constantly pretty similar. And so that is hard as a physician. If someone walks in the door and they don't know anything about their body, how are you going to help them unless they know what's going on? So we have them take a class um, called the Create and Model System uh, of natural family planning so they can identify biomarkers. Uh, they're taught a standardized way of writing it down on a chart. And then I'm trained to interpret that as a language that I understand to run tests and um, interpret those tests to um, create a standard, uh, unique treatment for that woman. How is that different? Because I know a lot of people here in natural family planning and they think of like the old school methods, like the calendar method or the rhythm method, um, which were, from what I understand, largely unreliable. Would you consider Creighton model or like Marquette to be more reliable than something like that? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it is an, a way to prospectively or in the day know exactly what's going on that day instead of relying on old cycles to predict fertility. One of the, one of the issues with things and, and the rhythm method or calendar methods of natural family planning um, was, and, and it, they were in their time back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, even a, a big step forward in terms of understanding um, that there were specific times in the cycle that a woman could conceive and certain times that she could not. Um, but they were um, basically treated all women as the same and every cycle as the same and assumed that fertility in each cycle in every woman could be figured out just by counting how many days she was in the cycle. And we know that that's not true. Um, women's cycles can vary wildly from one woman to another, and even a particular woman, depending upon what's going on in her life at, at, 
one time can have cycles where she is uh, that are different. So maybe she usually ovulates on day 11 of a cycle, but she's under a particular stress or something else is happening. In this cycle, she doesn't ovulate until day 16 um, or doesn't ovulate at all. Um, we needed to learn how to help women be able to understand themselves, what their what was happening in their cycles and when they were fertile. And that's what some of the folks who stepped up to Pope John Paul II's call for physicians to, you know, step up here and figure this out and help women out. And there were more physicians throughout the world who did that. The Billings in Australia, Dr. Um, Hilgers in, in Omaha, and others stepped up to, you know, do the research that was needed to help women figure that out. So the newer ways, and we like to call it fertility appreciation now instead of natural family planning because it's a broader term. Every woman should be able to appreciate her fertility and understand her cycles. Um, but we were able to learn what, what's, what's the underlying here? What are the signs? What are things that any woman can identify? And as she is helped to understand her cycles, can identify what's happening in her own body and when is she fertile and when is she not fertile based upon basic biologic signs that she can observe. And once you get started with that, then a whole science actually opened up where you can correlate that with what's going on with hormones and, and you get insight into not just fertility for planning a family, but insight into problems in the woman's cycle. Does she have medical issues like polycystic ovarian syndrome? Um, does she have an ovarian cyst unrelated to that in this cycle? Does she have symptoms of endometriosis? Does she have symptoms of thyroid disease? Any number of things that often women, want, once they've learned to understand their cycles, will come in and almost tell you what they've got because they understand their body and they understand what's happening. I love that fertility appreciation. Talk about empowerment for a woman to be able to understand her body on that type of a level. That's incredible. Speaking along the lines of issues like PCOS and endometriosis, talk to me about IVF, the IVF process, and why in vitro fertilization and other bioethics practices are not necessarily in line with the church teachings. And how is something like Napro technology beneficial for someone who's struggling with, with um, infertility? I know that's kind of a loaded question. We also, in Theology of the Body... Uh, we're taught the beauty of um, both components of the unitive and procreative um, parts of marriage and how those are both so incredible and part uh, so important for for marriage. And that's what God's design is for marriage. And taking either one of those away um, is harmful to, to the marriage because it's taking away, you know, an appreciation or um, saying there's a part of the other person you love everything but that part of them. So by shutting down, for example, with birth control, shutting down the procreative part, it's saying, I love everything about you, but your ovulation um, and how you were created to, to, to make children. Um, now the unitive part, you know, is, is um, the physical bond between man and woman and creating life together. And so when, with IVF, there's so many layers you could go into, but um, it completely takes the man away. I've seen, and even IUI is an important thing to include in that. So intrauterine insemination, where 
the the male in the relationship has to collect a sample in a room away from his wife. And, and I've seen an IUI with an IVF doctor and the husband was miles away, you know, in that act, the husband was not involved, you know, in the creation of that life. Um, and there is something to be that's lost in that for the husband and the child and, and the mother. And so there, it, it gets even, um, but then there's even another level to it when you add IVF, where a sperm and egg are put in a petri dish together to have conception in a dish in a lab um, with a, a stranger, a scientist, um, and they create embryos. They look at these embryos and discard the ones that don't meet the standards, or they do genetic testing and eliminate genders or eye colors or again, um, potential genetic issues. Then you have other ethical issues where you get five embryos, all five are good. And the first one in plants, you have four frozen. What do you do with that? And I've had a patient who herself has infertility and her, and she's was conceived through IVF and she struggles with that. And she struggles with the nine other embryos that are sacrificed for her life. And she has survivor guilt from that. So we also know there are medical issues related um, that we won't go into, but there's so many ramifications to this that we probably don't even comprehend. And, um, you know, there's always, I've talked about this fairly frequently and, and you're always questioned, well, how can you be opposed to IVF if you're pro-life? Because we're, you know, this is, IVF is pro-life, you're working. And and there certainly are lots and lots of folks who think that that's what they're doing. And they certainly, they're saying, I'm only doing this because I want, you know, um, to be supportive of, of have new life and, and help promote new life. Um but that motivation doesn't change what the process is. And unfortunately, um, there is, um, as, as Dr. Whitaker said, there is a connection between the unitive, um, the, the union of the man, a husband and wife um, in an act of sexual intercourse and the, and the creation of new life. And the church teaches us that we should not be pulling those two purposes of the, the marital act apart. Um, they also teach us that if we're having respect for every person as an individual, that every person has the right to arise as a result of the love and the unitive act of his parents working together, his or her parents working together for, toward, toward the creation of, of, of their life. Um, and even though folks who use IVF, I, I really think are certainly motivated in large part um, by that desire. The, the fact is that, that the, act, the, the, the act of IVF doesn't really meet those criteria. It doesn't, it doesn't do that. Um, again, on a larger societal level, it leads... And it has certainly led us. You can see that any, anybody who's paying any attention to the way our society is devolving, um, it has speeded up the process of looking at other human beings, other persons as objects. Um, it objectifies the gift of a child. 
and and you know you you're not allowed. It is certainly a heavy a heavy cross to bear, to have to to deal with the the cross of infertility. But no matter how heavy that cross is, that does not give us the right to demand what should be a gift. A gift is a gift. You can't force somebody to give you a gift. Yeah, I see a lot of women, you know, with the right intentions, and uh, they they just are, so, are suffering so much and so desperate. And they come, you know, they have a, I mean, it's a beautiful goal to be a mother, um, but they come from this place, I need this like, no matter what, mm-hmm. at any cost, yeah. sometimes. And that's how we end up in the places all that IVF takes us to, that many people find they're, they end up in a place they never ever would have conceived that, that, that or thought that they would have ended up because they've started down this path of objectifying the person who is the result of conception. It's not, it's not a gift anymore. Um, and so you, you go through IVF because you desperately want a child. Um, but you know, Six eggs get fertilized and now you have six embryos and some of them get frozen. Do we really, I mean, do we really think it's a good idea to freeze people? Um, or we sort out, as, as Dr. Whitaker said, which ones are worth continuing to, to allow them to develop an implant and which are not a very good quality. Right. And who are we to um, determine what your worth and, is? You know, or we implant you know, not so much anymore in in legitimate or, or um, IVS centers, but we implant two or even three embryos and, you know, more than one. And then we're talking about, well, that's a high-risk pregnancy. So which one of these embryos do we get rid of? And then we're talking about selective abortion. And all of this a result of objectifying persons. And part of it is people start down the path naively and say, okay, now I'm having trouble conceiving. They are slowly started on a treatment plan with just a regular infertility doctor, ovulation medication. Okay. Well now we're going to do IUI. Okay. And then, and then they're thrown into IVF and most of the time they're not given other options. They don't think there's another option or, or they may take the tubes um, of a mother of a woman who wants to be a mother um, to tr- because that's one of the treatments for one of the causes of infertility is to completely take the tubes and then they they feel like they have no they're told they have no choice but to do IVF. Um, so part of it is how medicine is is designed right now, and I don't think people really anticipate the road that they're going down. And once you're in it, it's harder to step back and say. Uh, you know, where, where am I going to stop it? And it's the same as when you start medicine, really before you get in your training, before I did my residency, where I'm actually practicing medicine, I had to think, where am I going to draw the line? Because once you're in the moment, in the situation, it's much harder to stop, you know, to, to make a very clear cut decision when your emotions are in it, or um, you have to make the decision very quickly. That's a great point. Those are all really great points. What do you think needs to change so that no more people know and embrace Nepro technology? Do you think there should be more education in schools or in pre-Cana? I remember when I did pre-Cana, we got 
a basic walkthrough of the Simply Thermal method. Um, but that was pretty much it. It was like, here's a thermometer. Have fun. Um, <laughs> what do you think would need to change to kind of get this technology that unfortunately not a lot of people know about is out there? You know, they think that their only option is IVF or IUI or something more invasive when in fact there's a really empowering method that exists that maybe they haven't heard of. Um, well, in, in terms of what can, I mean, you talked about pre-Cana and the church and that, I mean, I, from that perspective, I certainly think we need to be more proactive in those places that already exist to, to teach people. And, um, I think that the um, I don't know what Precana is like in all the various dioceses, and I know it's wildly different from one diocese to another. But some dioceses have really strong programs um, and really do promote the instruction um, in um, natural family planning or fertility appreciation. They could all beef that up, I think, with more information in terms of this, what's out there in terms of medically, scientifically supported treatments. Um, I think we need to have um, better education of um, our parish priests so that they know what's out there. Um, I, several times I've gone and spoken to, you know, conferences with our, with our priests, but they're in a hard spot if they don't know what's out there. So I think we need to do a better job of, of reaching out to the church, to, to our priests and, and other folks who minister to couples. Um, in terms of of the society in general, I just think the best thing we can do is what we're doing and what have been doing in practice is just let people know we're there and let people know that, that we're out there. So, you know, this program, telling people about it, um, talking to, and I know Naomi has done or done this, talking to other physicians to let them know we're out there. Um, the American Association of Prolif OBGYNs is pretty public and they, you know, um, testify before Congress and do, I mean, all of those things that we can do publicly. Social media is a good option. I'm on Instagram, uh, natural fertility surgeon. And so there's a lot of science in there and um, yeah, empowerment with knowledge about the women's menstrual cycle and other options that uh, they, they can um, use for treatment. But I think, I think the best would be just the sooner, the better uh, and the more knowledge we could get to young women about their cycle even before they start menstruating or even really early when they do so they can predict their next period, know they can be in control and know exactly when they're fertile um, to be able to predict their period. That's how we, we could uh, teach them young. And then later as they get older to say, oh, look, this, there's more applications to this in an age appropriate time. Um, I think if I was introduced to it really young, I would have been really interested, um, but I was taught in at my uh, Catholic high school about birth control, even the diaphragm was way outdated. And uh, and in college, in my endocrinology class, I was taught basically every family plan, natural family planning method is the rhythm method and it doesn't work. So it was constantly put in my head, this is wrong. Um, and my priest was misinformed as well that birth control was okay with the church and sterilization under certain certain circumstances. So I was given the wrong information. So we just need to get the, do a better job getting the information out there however we can. 
Absolutely. And I, I hope that this, that this helps and that this reaches somebody who needs to hear it. My next question is a little bit of a tough one. Abortion has been in the news a lot lately, especially with, you know, my body, my choice and the new law in Texas. And I read a statistic that was very sad that said um, one in four women has had an abortion and 78.3% have felt pressure to have an abortion. But many may not know what exactly it is. Do you think you could walk us through scientifically what an abortion, what happens when a woman requests an abortion? That depends a little bit on what type of abortion that she has and when in pregnancy that it occurs. Um, we are seeing more and more um, pressure and, and, and numbers of folks who are having what are called medical abortions. Um, that sounds really clean and it makes a lot of women, I think, feel like more comfortable perhaps that it's a medical procedure. Um, but at the end of the day, every abortion is the ending of the life of a life that the woman is carrying inside her. Okay. Whatever time of pregnancy that happens, medical abortions achieve that end by first off taking women take a medication to um, block the effects of progesterone. Progesterone is necessary in the early part of pregnancy for the um, developing embryo to properly implant in the uterus and, and, and uh, have a good safe place to grow. Um, so by blocking that pro the progesterone effect, um, the baby cannot implant, the, the developing embryo uh, baby can't implant properly. Um, and then an additional medication is given after the progesterone to cause the uterus to contract and force um, that developing baby out. Um, so that's a, that's done in the early part of pregnancy. Okay. Um, success rates vary. Um, in terms of how early in pregnancy it's done, the further along in pregnancy, the less likely that that's, that is to be a successful abortion. Um, then surgical abortion um, is when the, the cervix is forcibly dilated and the contents of the uterus, um, developing baby, placental tissue, et cetera, is um, suctioned or scraped out, generally early on scraped, uh, suctioned out, okay? Um, later in pregnancy, as the baby is bigger, you have to actually, um, the baby is of such a size that if you do that, you actually have to pull it to pieces in order to get it out. So the baby is forcibly um, destroyed um, and removed in pieces. Um, all of these have complications and potential problems for the mother who is undergoing them. There is no such thing as, you know, they say we want to make it safe. Um, all of these things have risks and potential complications for mom. Um, surgical abortions um, risk actual immediate um, injury to, to mother, whether it's cervix, uterus, okay, uterine perforations, um, which can bleed, introduction of infection. These things certainly happen, okay, with, with um, surgical abortions um, to the point that you know, the women, there is a risk of death, there is a risk of, of infection, long-term infertility. Um, so women, women lose their uterus. Okay. Um, I don't want to, to, to be accused of trying to scare women out of it. Certainly it's not the majority of women. Okay. The, the, but it definitely happens. And, and we need to acknowledge that that happens um, to women. Um, if the, if the cervix is forcibly dilated to allow the baby to be extracted, um, there is potential in subsequent pregnancies. The cervix may not function as well. 
So we know in women who've had surgical abortions, their risk of premature labor in a subsequent pregnancy is higher. Even a medical abortion, they're, they're not always, um, even those that are, should we, so we say successful in terms of ending the pregnancy, bleeding can be heavy. Oftentimes, uh, a surgical completion or uh, is necessary because all of the tissue doesn't come out. All of the placental tissue is not extruded and the woman can continue to bleed and bleed very heavily. Um, that can lead to the need for a DNC. That can lead to serious blood loss. Um, uh, there can be infection related to that. And women have died from medical abortions too. Okay. It's not just a surgical abortion that carries a risk of death. Um, I would like to put in a plug and I'll let Dr. Whitaker add what she wants to, but, um, I would like to put in a plug for reversal of medical abortions. Um, that is, um, the one thing that, that the, the pro-abortion, um, lobby is trying to minimize our women's un knowledge about this. But if a woman has, starts a medical abortion and changes her mind, and that certainly happens because a lot of women are pressured into abortion. So if she takes those pills that prevent pro progesterone from working, but has not yet taken the pill that causes the uterus to contract and force the placental tissue and the baby out, it is possible to reverse the process of abortion by overriding that progesterone blocker. And we do that by giving her so much progesterone that we sort of overwhelm the system. And there, and the baby then can survive that early attempt. And Dr. Whitaker is a good resource for this. There is, um, you, you'll remember the, the, the website. The Reversal Network. Yeah, um, there you can go online there, Abortion Pill Reversal Network, and um, find um, providers who will help you with that service anytime, day or night. It's an emergency service because that does have to happen as soon as possible after you take those first pills. It's interesting to note that usually the providers who prescribe these medications don't deal with the complications. They get sent to our practice. Um, emergency rooms randomly. Emergency rooms, whoever's covering an emergency room, um, those with hospital privileges. And also, um, you know, I've seen an emotional toll of these women for many years later and um, a guilt that comes with future pregnancies. Um, or if, you know, they wait 10, 20 years to start a family because they were young and they had a termination, they carry that with them. They blame themselves for infertility, even though, you know, it's probably not related, but um, it, it, it can haunt some people for the rest of their lives. And yeah, usually it's, it's often done in the moment of fear or pressure. For most women, I think if they have someone to support them and really talk it through, uh, are given all the options, including, you know, giving the baby up for adoption. Um, with time and support, a lot of women are very happy and are able to heal from a lot of trauma from an unplanned pregnancy, whatever the circumstances are, because oftentimes there's a lot of other issues going on um, and, and they're able to heal and a good thing can come from a very difficult situation. But those are really good to know, especially that resource, um, abortion pill reversal. Um, I'll definitely put that in the show notes for anyone who's looking. What advice would you give to a young mother or any mother coming into your practice who's who's unsure of what she should do because maybe she's facing pressure from her family or her friends to terminate a pregnancy, but she's kind of on that line. She's not sure where she should go. 
First of all, I would say take your time. I don't think anybody should have an abortion, obviously. Um, but certainly, if you personally are not 100% convinced that this is, that you are doing this because it's what you think is best to do, you absolutely should not be. So no woman should have an abortion because her boyfriend or her husband told her she had to, that nobody else will take care of her. She's on her own. Or because her parents are pressuring her, um, whether they think she's too young or can't handle it or they don't. I mean, don't rush into making this decision, first of all. And secondly, look out there for, you know, what resources are there? I, I've had so many young women come in to, to see me who were terrified to talk to their parents. And once they actually spoke to their parents, they didn't really get the response that they expected. There was a lot more support there than they thought there was going to be. So sometimes they feel pressure about things that they think are going to happen that aren't even real. So first of all, give yourself time. If your family is not supportive, if your boyfriend is not supportive, there are lots of people who want to help you, um, whether it's the Crisis Pregnancy Center down the street um, or um, a physician that you know. We, we see pe women, um, we get calls from the Crisis Pregnancy Center um, not on, not infrequently to say, you know, so-and-so is here. The, her, her family is pushing her. They said that she has to do it for this medical reason. Is this real? Is this really a concern? Will you see her? Will you talk to her? Yes. Uh, okay. I mean, the, go to your crisis pregnancy center. They have contacts. They have contacts with people in the medical profession. They have contacts with, you know, people in social services. They have, they provide social support themselves. Um, there are so many groups out there that are willing to help. Not just this minute when you're trying to decide what you're going to do in this moment of crisis, but down the road with support for the baby. And um, if you decide to, that you're going to, to keep the baby and parent, uh, material support and, and discussion of other options like adopting. Um, you know, adoption is not the same thing as it was in 1950. It doesn't mean you have the baby at the hospital, leave it, and some people you don't know take it home and you never have any contact with that child again. There are so many options um, that will even allow young women, um, not just young women, any women who are having a baby, <laughs> to be involved in that child's life if that's something that, that is important. Now, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, but there are so many different ways that, that you can solve the, this problem. And the problem isn't the child. The problem is the situation. And we have to find a better way to solve the situation than killing the child. And I say this to all the women who come in and talk to me, um, you know, like that are, that are considering abortion. I say, what you really want is to go back in time and have not gotten pregnant. But we can't do that. I can't make you unpregnant. An abortion is not going to make this child go away. You will always have been a mother. You're either going to be the mother of a child that you allowed to be killed, or you're going to be the mother of a child who is either living with you or living with someone else and being loved. So... Ladies, thank you so much for all this valuable information. I hope that our listeners are able to take away lots of really great things. And like I said, I'm going to be linking a lot of stuff in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash DAC and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.